Facebook very much incentivizes people to write and talk about politics. That is just the way Facebook works. If I post a story there about tech, it will get one-fifth as many likes as if I post a story there about politics. It is just at the core of Facebook. It is the way the algorithm has evolved over time. And particularly, it's politics with an element of outrage. And it turns out that even more particularly, it's politics with an element of outrage and an element of Donald Trump. It just goes well whether you're praising him or hating him. He is made for the era of social media. I don't think Donald Trump will be president without social media. I don't think social media would have evolved the way it has without Donald Trump. They go hand in hand. And that is one major issue in America right now. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. The Mueller investigation, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica drama, Nick Thompson's been behind the scenes of all of it. As the editor-in-chief at Wired, only the fifth since its founding, Wired, one of, if, if not the most prominent piece of tech media journalism out there today. Prior to Wired, he was the editor at NewYorker.com, co-founded a software company. He's the author of The Hawk and the Dove, Paul Nitze, George Kennan, and the History of the Cold War. He's appeared on every major cable news broadcast network, given public speeches on the most important issues of our day, testified in front of the Mexican Senate on fake news, moderated events at the World Economic Forum, CES, Google I.O., and many more, and is one of the preeminent players when it comes to the tech landscape and where we are all headed, especially how we learn about it. In today's episode, we discuss the future of media and the problem with fake news. We dive deep into the issues with social media and how we can address them. We cover why Nick is actually optimistic about Facebook becoming a force for good. We get an insider's perspective into the Huawei debate and the China trade war. We redesign democracy, dive deep into the fears and terror of AI upending all of us, or at least the power structure as we know it, and talk about how Nick thinks about privacy, convenience, and the future of the internet. We cover a wide gambit here because Nick is someone with experience in all of it. He's editor-in-chief of one of the most prestigious tech news outlets, and we get deep into it with someone who has taken the flack from, let's just say, higher-ups and been willing to go for it, go for broke, and break the stories that matter. Before I give you Nick Thompson, consider pausing this, sharing it with a friend. If you love the disruptors, it's the most important thing you could do for us. Help us reach more people. Help us make this movement larger, more important, more relevant, so that we can change the conversation and we can change at least a little bit this direction of the the great ship of society, so to speak. We've all got our part to play. We're trying to play our part, and we'd love if you help us do that and you help us make this more powerful. So disruptors.fm, people can find all of the podcasting, whatever podcasting platform people use, we're there. The Disruptors, share it, thank you. And now without further ado, I give you Nick Thompson. Do you run a business or blog and hate hosting and managing your site? If you do, check out WP Engine, the managed WordPress hosting company, 500,000 plus sites trust to simplify everything. They've got a special offer just for you listeners. If you go to disruptors.fm slash WP engine, you'll get 35 free premium studio press themes with any purchase. Look at our site. I couldn't do this design on my own. You need themes. These guys help you manage everything and simplify it. Save yourself a ton of time and headache in the process. Disruptors.fm slash WP engine. And now let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. 
not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Nick, you are very involved in the media industry, and we are in a very interesting time. So I wanted to get your take on what the state of media is today, what the state of fake news, the problems, the issues, where do you see us at? Well, there are a couple of subsets to that question. So there's the general question of where media is as a financial entity. And that's, we're in a pretty grim spot where it seems like there's a kind of a centralization where there are a few publications that are winning, becoming quite successful, and lots of publications that are struggling. This is most evident in newspapers where the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal are doing extremely well. Everybody else is having a hard time, particularly in bringing in subscriptions. It is less true, though also true of magazines. So as kind of a financial question, there's a lot of problems. And I can talk forever about how we think about that at Wired and what we're doing with it um, and how Wired's business works and how I think the future of media will work. But let's leave that aside for now. So that's number one. The number two is the question, the second part of the question, which is about how we are with fake news. Is that media has a really important role in making sure that the information that flows through society is accurate, it's fair, it's true, that the stories that should be covered are covered, that the stories that are should not be covered are not covered. And we're doing okay. The two problems are kind of tied together. The financial pitfalls of the media industry, the struggles identifying all the right things to cover. Sometimes I look out at my feed, I look at what's being published, and I think, oh, it's the greatest time ever in journalism. Look at all this wonderful reporting from all these far-flung places. And other times I look at it and think, my God, why do we cover this? And then the third part of that question is, how are we doing as an institution with the public reputation, and there it's not good, right? Trust in media is declining. Part of that is because of bad decisions we've made. A lot of that is because of the partisan political environment and the current occupant of the White House who doesn't like his coverage and has turned, you know, the 40% of the country or 43% of the country that supports him against this profession in an effective way. And that's, that's on us, that's on him, and that's a problem. So that's three ways of breaking down a really good question that could be broken down probably in 16 ways. It could. I think the first one's the driver, though. I think the ad-based model of media and of social media, I think those two kind of trigger the other problems. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So particularly on social media, I often think that if social media from the beginning had been based on subscriptions or based on payments, you would have a totally different news ecosystem today than you do, right? If Facebook was rewarded by making its product better so that you felt like you had to pay for the information you received there, it would have had incentives to provide high quality information. Instead, its business model is based on time. You know, it will make more money if you spend more time on it and click on more ads. Therefore, it created a core algorithm that incentivized different kinds of content, not kinds of content that attack or that are good for the sort of the most thoughtful outrage. parts of your brain, but for your lizard brain, right? They provoke outrage. So that definitely, that is absolutely part of it. And then Secondarily, for publications, to the extent magazines or newspapers are trying to get subscriptions, they are trying to appeal to the most thoughtful part of your brain. And to the extent they are trying to just get your attention, they try to appeal to your lizard brain. So yes, absolutely. 100%. You nailed it. Yeah, I think uh, we were living over in Europe at the time when the, the build up to Trump was happening before it became a reality. And I, ha I had lots of Swiss friends going, is this, is this serious? But I think that was part of the problem. So with media, People were so incentivized to get the eyeballs and attention that they were posting more and more stories about Trump because, look, these get incredible clicks and engagement, which drives that to the front. And there's the old saying in, in publicity, no, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Is that kind of what's happened? And is there a way to fix that? Because people aren't paying that much in terms of subscriptions. 
that is at core. And I don't think it's just Trump. I think it's what happened is that particularly with Facebook, which back in 2016 was a huge part of the news distribution ecosystem, much more so than it is now. Facebook very much incentivizes people to write and talk about politics. That is just the way Facebook works. If I post a story there about tech, it will get one-fifth as many likes as if I post a story there about politics. It is just at the core of Facebook. It is the way the algorithm has evolved over time. And particularly, it's politics with an element of outrage. And it turns out that even more particularly, it's politics with an element of outrage and an element of Donald Trump. It just goes well, whether you're praising him or hating him. He is made for the era of social media. I don't think Donald Trump will be president without social media. I don't think social media would have evolved the way it has without Donald Trump. They go hand in hand. And that is one major issue in America right now. Do we need a downvote button? I know Reddit has a lot of its own challenges, but I was listening to an interview with Nato Haney and the other one, and they were bringing up that they avoid a lot of these issues because Donald Trump posts something on Twitter, it gets 40,000 likes. That doesn't include the 150,000 people that would like to say, I hate this. Yeah. I mean, Facebook, so I'll say three things on that. A, the notion that Reddit doesn't have these problems they have a little problems. bit of spin. And Reddit has, you know, creating cesspools on the internet. Reddit is not absolved. Let's just say that. Uh, they're not even absolved from Russian disinformation. But it is true. They do have a downvote button, and that is very helpful. And they do have powerful mods who, if they see BS, you know, spreading rapidly, can remove it, right? So they do actually have a level of human intervention that is quite helpful. So secondly, you know, Facebook does kind of have a downvote button, right? You can say dislike, you can put an angry face emoji. I mean, the core thing that Facebook has to do is to change the algorithm to appeal to different elements of our brains and personalities. So the newsfeed algorithm, you know, and I've been saying this for years, should be based less on likes and comments and immediate reactions and more based on the time you spend reading a story or the ratio of the likes that you give after reading a story to before it, which is a good indicator of quality. Basically, Facebook has the best AI engineers in the world, and they should be spending their time trying to develop metrics of high-quality information that are baked into the algorithm, just like sort of emotional outrage was baked into the algorithm for years. This is something Facebook is definitely doing, and I think it will lead to you know, better information flows in 2020. Uh, and same thing at Twitter. Can we do that without changing the... I think a big part of the problem is the the open stock market. You essentially have highs and lows every single day, and that incentivizes short-term thinking. The business models they have right now are incentivized to screw everyone at, at the request of the shareholder, so to speak. It's like I saw a cartoon. You see the world burning, and there's these two venture capitalists or bankers or whatever, and the one guy says to the other, well, you know what? At least for a while there, we created some great shareholder value. Yeah, it's a New Yorker cartoon. That is a classic. I love that cartoon. It's a great one. How do we how do we do that? All right. So incentive wise, yes, Facebook still has the same core financial incentives, but there is a point of leverage, which is really important, which is that the engineers at Facebook don't want to ruin the world. They feel a lot of responsibility for the political toxicity that has been created. And so they all want to feel like the product they are building helps American civil engagement and civic society. And so, and if they don't think it is, they will leave. And Facebook needs to keep their best engineers. So I think that is actually the most interesting point of leverage. It's the employees. And if you look at the last couple of years in Silicon Valley, you've seen that it is the employees at these companies who have really pushed change 
So that's an important, important way to look at it. But they, they get their bonuses not based off of improving people's lives, but based off of making money. Same thing with same thing with Google and YouTube. I think the recommendation engine is a big part of the problem because to recommend something, the, the more extreme, the better. They do, though. Facebook is actually trying to change their... There was a mandate last November that the bonuses will no longer be tied to engagement and stock performance. They'll be tied to more nebulous measures of social good. But it is absolutely true that you know, one of the fundamental drivers of the problems that were created was that everybody at Facebook was paid based you know, in the worst form on the amount of time that people spent on Facebook and in an only slightly better form on the stock performance. Now they'll get their bonuses based on other metrics of Facebook's effect on the world, but I don't know, I don't know exactly how those will work. To the recommendation engine, yes. And I think it's interesting that the knives that were you know, stuck into Facebook for most of the last two years, many of them are now getting stuck into YouTube as people realize, oh, wait, there's as much toxicity coming out of this place as there was out of that place. And the YouTube one's even harder to see because it's, it's even more individualized, I would. It's even more individualized. So, so my... The question I have about YouTube is how the algorithm really works. And I'll give you two hypotheses. One is that it's like the way the Facebook algorithm used to work, which is there are a bunch of metrics and they're weighed, right? And they weigh metrics like how many people upvote, how many people downvote, how many people comment, how many people watch to the end, how often does it appear in search, right? They do semantic analysis of the comments, right? That is one hypothesis, that they take all these factors and they weigh them. The other hypothesis is that they just have an AI algorithm. And they say to the AI algorithm, here is all the data optimized for watch time. And they don't even know what the algorithm is doing. And my guess is that up until last year, it was what I described in option A, bunch of engineers with a bunch of levers weighing different things. And they chose the wrong ones. And I would have chosen different ones. And that in the last two years, it's been a combination. And that if not now, but soon, there will just be an AI algorithm that takes all the data and optimizes for watch time, which means it will probably push lizard brain recommendations and pushing people deeper into dark places because that engages us. Let me let me put a third possibility. I think the algorithms don't necessarily optimize for time. They optimize for ad clicks. That's probably true. And that is actually, that is, right. You the can easiest say the, way to get, yeah. Right, the optimize easiest, for revenue. And the easiest way to do that isn't necessarily to keep people longer. It's to make them more likely to buy. And to make them more likely to buy, when you look at people that are buying things on these platforms, it's generally lowest common denominator. So you have to move people towards the lowest common denominator of their feelings, i.e. rage, hate, etc. And optimize. Basically, they're able to see, oh, look, flat earthers buy XYZ. Let's make this guy more of a flat earther. They don't even realize they're doing it. I could make the counter argument or I could make a partial counter argument, which is when you're in a rage fill mode, mood, you probably don't buy as much, right? You actually... You buy more because you're more emotional. It's like when you feel like shit, you eat, eat more ice cream. That's true. But when you're... You have less self-control. But you're not going to buy a watch when you're mad and you're not going to book a cruise, right? You're going to do that when you're in a mood, when you're emotionally uplifted. So actually, it depends on who the advertisers are. That'd be a really interesting study. See what advertisers are most effective at YouTube over time. And by doing that, assuming that the algorithm is set up the way you and I have just hypothesized, you would get a pretty good analysis of what the algorithm is doing. There's your next article. Google makes you feel like Google makes you feel like shit. So you buy more stuff. It's kind of what we all knew. But once you can prove it, then you really got something. But what's hey, it like? Sorry, say one, one more point while we're sticking on this Google thing. You know, if indeed there is an AI algorithm optimized for revenue, then that will have some positive effects because there are lots of videos where you can't run ads, right? The worst 
conspiracy videos and you know blood-filled videos are blocked from advertisers. So if indeed they optimize for money, not for time, there's at least some small benefit there. Yeah, but there's so many videos uploaded. It's hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen it before. What's it like being on Ground Zero? You've been there for Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, Mueller. You've been a busy, busy man. What's it like? What's it like being in the in the war room, so to speak? Oh, I love it. I mean, we're as editor of Wired, you're constantly trying to sort through these very hard issues in real time. You know, and I get to do a little bit of it as a reporter, written two long stories about Facebook, which have been immense fun. I get to do it a little bit as a manager, directly editing stories about Mueller or directly editing stories about Google. And then some I do from more of a distance, just assigning pieces, trying to identify where the next catastrophe will be and getting our very smart writers to write about it. So where's the next catastrophe going to be? <laughs> I don't know. But if any of your um, listeners have suggestions, they can uh, they can email me at Nicholas underscore Thompson at wired.com and tell us where to investigate. I've heard some interesting predictions on ad fraud that a vast majority of, of digital ad spend is in fact fraud. So that might be an interesting In video thing spend or on um, text spend? Overall digital spend. If you look at a lot of these click farms, I mean, a lot of how can companies be making so much money selling so much shit? How much how many people actually buy things online? When is the last time an ad got you to click, let alone you didn't have an ad blocker on? Right. But if there is, I mean, I wonder, I don't doubt that there's a lot of ad fraud. I wonder how much of that is baked into ad prices. Right. So let's say that one third, two thirds of all views are fraudulent. And an advertiser is paying $10 a CPM, right? So $10 for every thousand viewers. If you were to get rid of those two thirds, maybe they would then just pay, you know, $30 a CPM for one third of the views and they would expect the same revenue, right? Because I mean, they're baking their advertising spend into how consumers react. So if there's a ton of ad fraud, it may just be distorting the market, driving down CPMs, but not actually being that important a thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But if you were an advertiser, would you spend if you realized you were getting screwed? I bet you. I, it's just an interesting I spend, if, if I were an advertiser and I had two options, I could advertise on a site where I knew half the traffic was fake or I could advertise on a site where I knew all the traffic was real. I would offer 50%. I would just pay 50% less on the site where it was half fake, right? What would happen if Facebook's market cap was 50% less? There's a question. But it's uh, it's one of those ones where we're speculating a lot. We're not saying this is the truth. Mm-hmm. But just just some interesting things that people that had that is, I mean, that is an information inter- could, thought about. All right. If you have a listener or if you find and you can point to a new, interesting kind of ad fraud, I would love to investigate it. And in part, like, because it's a great story about the digital economy and in part, like Wired, which tries really hard to have verifiable, viewable ads. It's, it's in the interest of all high quality publishers to get rid of ad fraud, which distorts the market and distorts the revenue away from the people doing the real journalism. What is the future of journalism? I think that the future of journalism is going to be smart, investigative reporting and analysis that people are willing to pay for and that the ad supported version of journalism is going to be harder and harder. So it's going to be not completely, but to a greater extent than today, a subscription based kind of journalism, which is great. In one way, because it'll incentivize higher quality journalism for the reasons we talked about five minutes ago. And it's not great in another way because you don't want to have a news ecosystem where only people with money can read what's important. So you want a combination of free stuff so that people, not everybody has to pay. What is the subscription to the Wall Street Journal cost now? $400? So people don't have to pay for the best news. But you also want to have people paying for the best news that you can incentivize the kind of reporting that is required to get it. Do you do it in a patron model where it's freemium or do you do it where, hey, guess what? You're not paying, so we're selling your data. 
Not you, not you guys, but just in general. Combination of those, right? So the problem with the we're going to sell your data model is sucks to have your data sold. Problem with the patron model is that it creates distortions, right? So Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, right? Prove the tech stack, the Washington Post. Does the Washington Post cover Amazon without fear or favor? Seems like they do a pretty good job, but that is hard. And there is a long tradition of patrons corrupting the journalism they support. And then there's the free speech issue. I know you've talked about it a little bit before. I see a lot of tech, we'll just say people that have negative views towards certain aspects of tech saying that Facebook, Google, etc. should be filtering these things, taking down hate speech, etc. But I feel like that's a slippery slope. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, the free speech issue is so tangled right now, where the debate about free speech on these platforms has turned so partisan, where it's mostly Republicans using it as a cudgel to try to counter what they believe is favoritism towards the left on these platforms. And I believe that's misguided and opportunistic. But at the same time, I think that the question of free speech on these platforms is a huge one. And we are, there is no issue in Silicon Valley where the general views of the powerful people have changed as much. Well, maybe, I mean, gender actually might be another issue where it has changed as much over the last three years. But the views on free speech have changed dramatically, and they've gone from Silicon Valley needs to favor free speech and in general side on the issue of free speech and side on the issues of openness to the opposite, which is everybody needs to side with safety, right? So when safety comes into conflict with free speech, when there's the question of whether you should allow someone to say somebody and therefore put somebody else at risk, five years ago, everybody in Silicon Valley sided with free speech. Now everybody sides with safety. And that is a big, big shift. And you can justify every decision that has been made along the way. But, but, you know, there's a reason this country works. And one of the reasons this country works is the First Amendment. And there's no legal requirement for these tech platforms to follow the First Amendment. But the lessons of several hundred years of history are that it's always easy in the moment to side against free speech, but it's always good in the long run to side with it. It reminds me of presidential power. If you look at every president in the past, they've all just taken a little bit more power. They've gotten a little bit more of the cake. But what happens when you find yourself with a president who's built upon all of that power and suddenly you don't like their perspective? What happened when Mark Zuckerberg isn't Mark Zuckerberg? He's Mark Zuckerberg from hell, which well, we don't have to argue what he would look like. But it, you, you find yourself in a position where it's like, oh, shit, I'm on the wrong side of this argument now and I don't have a voice. And that's not that's not to say I'm supporting hate speech. It's just to say you got to kind of think about the consequences before you go out with the pick for it. Right. So once you say it's okay for Jack Dorsey to deplatform people based on his beliefs, then it's okay for anyone that leads the company to eventually deplatform anyone for whatever beliefs they want. Right. Which is why I have a lot of sympathy. It's hard to have sympathy for Milo or Alex Jones, but a couple steps in, you know, for people on the right saying, hey, hold on a second. There's, I definitely have sympathy there. Yeah, you don't get the good without the bad because we're human beings. And this issue gets only more complicated as AI becomes more effective and you can, you know, Facebook, Twitter could, instead of having the very reactive problems they have, on, the very reactive policies they have on speech, could set up AI algorithms to automatically delete accounts who post views they find objectionable. Great wall of Twitter. We got a great wall of China already, right? Yep, you could have you could have that. And then you can imagine a super evil Jack Dorsey doing that. But how do people not see that coming? Because the stakes at the moment seem so high. And because so much <laughs> yeah. of so much of the free speech issue has been tied into, you know, make America great hostility. I think that the, you know, who is out there on the left defending free speech as a principle? I mean, is the ACLU still doing it? It's it's there's not there's not a lot of 
nuance and intelligence in the middle of this free speech debate, unfortunately. I consider myself pretty moderate and liberal. And yet I see when you look at politics, you see you see the right, which more or less they kind of spartan up and get in phalanx and defend each other, unless there's a good place to stab somebody in the back and steal a spot. But on the left, you kind of see it's kind of like a dog eat dog world. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's um. Would you have banned Alex Jones from Twitter if you were Jack Dorsey? It depends if they've banned other people or not. But if you're going to set the precedent, you've got to realize that you're setting a precedent. Mm-hmm. I think you can do a lot of things without banning. I would probably just make it disappear unless you really search for it. I know they're doing that kind of stuff now, but it's um yeah, it's one of the. It's a hard-ass question. Yeah. I mean, like the point you make, free speech is not the same as free reach, right? You can you can sort of demote all of their posts is a, is a good answer. But also, I worry a little bit about that and that it gives the tech companies too easy an out in that if you you can demote somebody to some you know number just slightly above zero, and it is kind of the same as banning them. So you have to be careful there, too. Yeah, I guess it is just the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. What issue worries you most today and why? What issue worries me the most? I mean, like a big issue or small, like climate change. But do you mean that or? I'll let you take it how you want. Oh, I'll take it as I want. Okay, so the issues that worry me the most. Climate change. We're not doing a lot. It seems to be getting worse. Yeah, you got the 95, 95 degree New York City, right? Right. Sweating through my shirt as we talk. Second, though, uh, you know, we are talking. I mean, there are lots of people talking about it. It is Jay Inslee's entire campaign, right? Everybody in the Democratic debates has a similar position on climate change. The other issue that worries me a lot is that we're not spending enough time thinking about nuclear nonproliferation and about the risk of nuclear warheads. And we spent, you know, from 19, let's say 1949 to 1989, obsessed on this issue and thinking about the game theory of how you limit the odds of nuclear war, how you limit the odds of nuclear weapons getting into the hands of dictators. And then since 1989, we have spent far less energy than the issue deserves thinking about how do you keep your arsenal safe? How do you limit the number of countries that have nuclear weapons? Is it possible to work with the game theory to actually lead to a world without nuclear weapons? And the dream of a world without nuclear weapons seems to have been lost and we seem to be going in the wrong direction. Like there seems to have been a moment, you know, maybe when Barack Obama was elected, maybe in the Clinton administration, where you could have actually started to head towards that world. It was a very hard world to get to because, of course, if we get rid of all of our nuclear weapons and then somebody else has one, the power dynamics completely shift. But regardless... The amount of time and energy and thought we're putting into an issue that involves the survival of our species seems inappropriate. So I am deeply interested in those questions. It's an ignorance is bliss kind of thing where people get their new normal and completely forget. Yeah, we we forget that we have several thousand weapons that could, just a couple of them, make the planet uninhabitable. And that's risky. And Russia has them too. And North Korea may have them. And if North Korea has them, well, then, you know, maybe Japan, which hasn't had a military since World War II, will decide they want them. And then what do we do? If you give a mouse a cookie, everybody gets fat. It's it's tough. It's tough, right? And so I would, you know, what I wish is that the story of 1989 to 2019 had been a story about, okay, so let's at least get rid of I don't know, we'll get rid of ICBMs and we'll get rid of France's nuclear arsenal. We'll get rid of England's and we'll drive them to zero. And then eventually you'll put, you know, the last remaining nuclear arms arms under some UN custodianship. Like there are ways to work the game theory to reduce to a world without nuclear weapons. But we didn't do that. And now we're certainly not doing that. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the more terrifying ones. And it's still it's still like a couple seconds delay of let's hit the big red button. Yeah, I was I guess it was. It was recently, or not that long ago, like some Soviet war plans came out. And the question that was you know, uncovered was, 
what city would the Soviet Union have destroyed first in a nuclear war in the 70s and 80s? What were they planning for, right? Because you don't want to destroy New York or Washington first. You want to do a demonstration strike to show that you're serious and ideally to... And if you, if you blow up New York or Washington, Washington responds with all-out nuclear response, destroys the whole Soviet Union, and it's lights out for everybody. So in this sort of second worst-case scenario, what city do they blow up first? And the answer, according to Soviet war plans, or at least what I read about it, was Boston, where I grew up. And so it's funny to think in retrospect, wait, my hometown, my little backyard where I would play with my sisters, like that was the Soviet target during, you know, the years when I was a child. It makes it, there are many ways that nuclear war can feel more present in your life and that did it for me. What do you think about, they had, what's his name, the famous sci-fi author, and they uh, they played War of the Worlds on the radio yeah. and got people scared shitless about it. Do you think we could do something similar today or would that have more unintended consequences than we could handle? I don't know. I don't know whether fear... I don't You're the editor of Wired, right? I am the editor of Wired. Could I? Ooh, good thought. I'll do, I'll do my Orson Welles. Um, I think that what we need is smart conversations I wish during the democratic debates, there was real conversations about nuclear nonproliferation. I mean, probably there's a role that Wired could play in helping to foster conversations, you know, because the risks are you want society making the right choices, you want policymakers making the right choices, and you want the issue to seem interesting so that smart engineers go into the field, right? You want people to go to the Department of Energy who really understand how to make the weapons as safe and effective as possible, right? You want them to blow up when you want them to blow up. That way you have a real deterrent and you want them to not blow up when you don't want them to blow up because then there's a real risk of accidental explosion, right? And those are hard engineering challenges. So you want that kind of job to be exciting. So how you, and it was exciting during the Cold War because it was front of mind. Maybe actually, yeah, maybe scaring the public would raise the issue up a level and more people would go in. Mostly I want to do it though. I don't, it's, it's not really my style of editing. Yeah, they, hell. in Hawaii, they had the missile system. Shoot, guys, you got five minutes. Get under the table. <laughs> right. And even, even that didn't change anything, really. It's an interesting question of how you get wired to think about issues of nuclear deterrence. Because in one way, if I were to take a hypothetical where the way we write about it could reduce the risk of all-out nuclear catastrophe by 10%, then really you should write anything about it. <laughs> like if, Unless it increases the odds of... Right, but what if it increases the odds by 10%? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Is that what you're most worried about? What about bioterrorism or bioengineering? Oh, I think that's a big problem. I mean, it's funny. You ask what I'm most worried about and like, what do I actually spend more time worried about? I probably spend more time when you think about our story meetings and our internal conversations. We probably spend more time talking about the risks of an all-powerful AI, which I think are fairly low, the risks of bioterrorism, which I think are substantially higher, the risks of a gene editing race leading to a distortion of what it means to be human, which completely changes the way society works. Those are pretty high risks, maybe for the better, but probably for the worse. Those are things we talk about a lot here too. Yeah, the the reach exceeds the grasp. Mm -hmm. Why do you think AI is not a big risk? Oh, I think AI is a big risk to jobs. AI is a big risk to social infrastructure. AI is a big risk to any particular industry. I just mean that the kind of Nicholas Bostrom or Elon Musk hypothesis that an all-powerful AI, you know, could obliterate the human species. I find that so far off with so many different potential forks in the road that it's not worth worrying about too much right now. It's an interesting thought experiment, but it's 
there's so many decisions from here and there. I do, but speaking of Nicholas Bostrom, I do think, you know, he wrote this paper a couple of months ago about the, you know, what are the odds? If you think of scientific experiments as balls in an urn and you're picking out balls and there is some scientific invention that would obliterate humanity and think of it as a black ball, what are the odds that you pick a black ball out of the urn? And if you know that there is a black ball in the urn, what do you do as you pick them out to try to limit the odds that you get one, or if you do get one, that you're able to prevent it from destroying humanity? So for example, if there were a technology that would allow anybody to create a nuclear weapon in their microwave, that would be a black ball from the urn. Because if you gave everybody the power to make a nuclear weapon, some disgruntled 12-year-old would make a weapon and end the world, right? There would be enough people who, you know, if, if nuclear weapons were that easy to make, we would be done, right? I wish they were even harder to make, but thankfully they're at least somewhat hard to make. But so Bostrom's thought experiment is, okay, if scientific progress is picking these balls out of the urn, there probably is a black ball. What do you do? So that I do find interesting. That I do find worth debating. This, the question of whether AI is that black ball, I do not think it is. And we have a long way to go until it could become that. I would agree. But do you have kids? I have three little kids. Yes. Can you predict everything they're going to do just today, let alone multiplying that times 100 million billion, assuming they learn very, very quickly? It's it's one of those things where I, I don't think it's the biggest problem, but I, I'm willing to say that anyone that thinks it's not a problem is very ignorant or... Well, what do you mean by it, though? I mean... If you have something that you're creating that we'll say, we'll say general intelligence, but let's say you're creating something that is inherently different than you and learns faster than you. We, we can't even keep hackers out of databases because there is always a bug, no matter what. I don't see how you could foresee all possible problems and then foresee the problem. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And what we don't know is pretty, pretty damn big. So I would completely agree that an era of artificial intelligence will be an era of superpowered hackers. And I completely agree that it will be an era of super fast change to the work we do. And I'd also argue that it will lead to a rebalancing of global military power because the countries that build AI most effectively into their weapon systems and into their war planning operations will be the countries that have the most military power, as opposed to as it is right now, where it's just the countries that spend the most money, namely us. But you can imagine another country that comes up with an AI war planning system that is better than ours. And in AI, you know, one year of progress in AI is like 100 years of progress in non-AI. So you can imagine the military balance of power changing. Those things I worry about absolutely 100%. The question is whether we, were, we will, within a, the reasonable time frame of the future, we will build machines so powerful that they will make us obsolete. That is what I don't worry about at the moment. Okay. Right? So like the sort of the general AI nightmare scenario, apocalypse, is the right the paperclip experiment. Imagine you had an all-powerful computer that, you know, exceeded human intelligence in every way possible, had infinite capacity, and you gave it the instruction to make paperclips, right? It would then turn the whole world into paperclips and there'd be no way of stopping it, right? It would figure out how to grind down the building I'm in in order to make more paperclips. And if that was its sole objective, we couldn't stop it. That is a very useful thought experiment, but I don't think it's something we need to really worry about. What we do need to worry about is what you said. We need to worry about AI-enabled hackers. We need to worry about AI job churn. We need to worry about AI war planning. We need to think about who we give that power to. We need to make sure that the economy works as effectively as possible. We need to make sure we're prepared for an era of change. Those are all problems of the moment that 
we need to think about, we need to solve, um, where we need to use AI for good as much as possible and limit the odds of AI being used for harm. That I definitely worry about. It scares me in that I feel like it's a bit like psychiatry. We don't really know what we're doing. We create a drug and we see what type of effects it has on people that they report. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know the mechanism and we're kind of like, okay, this helps for depression. Take this. But without understanding the mechanism, you're creating something that is kind of a solution you don't understand. So let, let's flip the nightmare scenario. Let's say we have artificial general intelligence, but it's weak right now. What would it do? It would hide until it learns everything about us. So we could get into a situation very easily where you have some type of entity that's just existing, learning everything. Imagine Watson, if Watson didn't suck. Then you get into that situation where it's not, oh, look, we created AI. It's, oh, look, AI got to the point where it was ready to say hi, and it learned some not so nice things about us. But would an A, an artificial general intelligence that's weak and hiding, it would be overpowered by specific kinds of AI that are strong, but limited, right? I mean, so what... No, 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 no. So it starts out weak, but kids start out weak and they get better and better and better. What if your kid for every day that progressed, every day was half of a millisecond? Well, how soon would your kid be wrestling you and beating your butt? How soon would they be outworking you on Einstein's theorems? How soon would they be? It's just one of those things where if you don't think about it ahead of time. How likely is it that my kid would be doing that in a way that I, with my own AI, wouldn't notice? Pretty high if you're not looking for it. But I would have my own AI, which would be extremely powerful and having it look for. I mean, it is possible, right? There is the hypothesis that, you know, there will be a point where machines are so powerful that the most powerful machine, even if it's only one day's worth of work more powerful than the second most powerful machine, will have a near infinite advantage because the speed at which technology advances. What I'm saying is if people create artificial and general intelligence without realizing they've done it. Mm -hmm. And then you have a where's Waldo situation where you don't realize Waldo's there. But it's a... It's one of those ones you speculate about. I think there's, there's, I have other bigger existential risks, the bioterrorism. Do you think a world ending AI has to be artificial general intelligence? No, I think if you gave Trump AI, you could have a world ending mixed intelligence. You gave Trump just I. Um, No, actually he's, he's, that man is very smart in all kinds of ways. I think that. It's hard to tell what's an act and what's not, because it, it could be a great showman type deal where completely manipulating a crowd. Or it could be what it appears to be, and it's real hard to tell. It's hard to tell, right? I mean, we just, I was wondering yesterday, he, you know, the Fed lowers interest rates because of a response to Trump's trade war threats. And I was thinking, wow, that's possibly really smart multidimensional chess where he deliberately starts a trade war that he can call off, but makes it enough of a threat that the Fed lowers interest rates thereby boosting the economy in a way that- But the economy's in trouble. So people don't realize that the Fed has two levers. They have interest rates and they have inflation, how much money they're printing. And one's a speed up and one's a slow down. And you can use either lever. Think about it like driving a boat. You can control the speed and you can control the direction. So by having low interest rates, that's stimulating the economy. By having right now lots of inflation in terms of how much money is getting poured in, that's stimulating the economy. So if there's any type of hiccup, they can't push faster. They're already pushing as hard as they can. You get into a situation where you have a crash because there's no way to avoid the the, the iceberg that's about to impel the Titanic. True. But if you are Trump, what you want is all you care about not all you care about. Well, you're most incentivized Re-elected. is for there to be a booming economy and no crash in November of 2020. And if that's your goal, what you do is you get the Fed to raise interest rates in August of 2019 and you call off your trade war. 
Did you say raise or lower? I thought you said Sorry, lower, lower interest rates. Yes, lower, mm-hmm. lower interest rates as we just did. Anyway, point being, I think that Trump may have just pulled off a really brilliant economic move. Is the Huawei stuff all bullshit? Is that just a similar thing, a bargaining chip? Oh, such a good question. Okay, so Huawei. I So our we have made a bunch of charges against Huawei, right? Number one, they violated our Iran sanctions policy, right? By setting up a subsidiary company that was hidden and was able to violate sanctions. That, I think, is spot on true, right? Number two, they have a backdoor, which allows the Chinese government to get access to anybody who's using Huawei equipment, for example, on our 5G networks or on, you know, Huawei phones with Android installed on them. That, I think, is false. I don't know, but I have yet to see anybody pointed out, and I feel like there are enough people looking at it that we would have identified it before. So yes, they violated sanctions. No, I don't believe our accusations. So that's sort of premise. Okay, so then the question is, fine, is Trump's move to both block Huawei from being installed in American infrastructure and two, block U.S. companies from doing business with Huawei? Is that a smart policy decision? I actually don't think that blocking Huawei from our infrastructure is a terrible idea. Probably you want your base infrastructure done by Western and American companies. It's too bad because Huawei infrastructure is cheap. So you're disadvantaging particularly rural areas where they need to build the cheapest broadband in order to get most people most access. But that I think is a defensible position. I don't agree with it, but it's defensible. The question of whether US companies should be able to do any business with Huawei, that I totally disagree with their decision and they're blocking that, right? I mean, I am much happier in a world in which Google can have Android on Huawei phones than I am in a world in which Huawei builds its own operating system and Google's market share declines just from sort of an American national interest geopolitical perspective. So I do think we are making mistakes in our Huawei relationship. I definitely think that some of it is based on exaggeration. It's possible that some of it is false, um, but it's a super duper complex issue. Well, I mean, it's a potential um, uh, whatever that breaks the camel's back type deal. You've got two superpowers that if if China was to do something similar, hey, guess what, Apple? Hey, guess what, Microsoft? You can't have any parts from China. What happens there? Or just going straight to war. If you've got a multi-hundred billion dollar company, if it is owned by the Chinese government in some way, you're kind of you're kind of playing with a tiger. And, and you know, if you were to go back to another way I could have answered your question of what worries me most would be not what do I think is the biggest risk, but what is a huge risk that I think is likely it is this. And what is a huge risk I think is likely? A huge risk is the decoupling of the American and Chinese economic systems, a decoupling particularly of the American and Chinese tech systems, and then that leading to an increased odds of conflict, you know, as China becomes richer than the United States, right? They will surpass us in the next 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is as the richest country on earth. And traditionally, when the richest country on earth is surpassed by the second richest country on earth, there's conflict. That often happens. Um, I don't want there to be conflict. And one of the best ways to reduce the odds of conflict is to integrate the economies better so that we are incentivized for China to get richer instead of feeling like it's a zero-sum game. To the extent that our economic dynamic with China is seen as a zero-sum game, the odds of conflict go up and that sucks. How much of that do you think, let's speculate a little, how much of that do you think is driven by the military-industrial complex, which wants a war because that's what makes money? Because I think there's a ton of terrible things about China, but I think pinning it up as the next Russia so that we can have another Cold War doesn't seem potentially, doesn't seem promising in any way, shape, or form. I think there is definitely some military industrial complex wants larger investments. I don't know if they want war, but threat of war definitely leads to good business. I think it's more, it's good for politicians to have a boogeyman. It's good for Trump to be able to denounce China, a country we don't understand, led by the Communist Party. I would say it's of 
my cynical read of why this happens is less military industrial complex, more politicians. Okay. What do you think about China and their building out the the investment road, so to speak? China is becoming very influential across Africa, Southeast Asia, Asia. Yeah, I think so, it, yeah. I think it's an extremely smart move for China. China does not have a lot of allies in the world. We have a lot of allies. China does not have a lot of allies. If I were a member of the Chinese government, I would absolutely be building out Belt and Road. I would be providing technology infrastructure for any country that would take it. And I absolutely think it's a threat to America's influence in the world and that the more the more power like the amount of sort of soft power in the world and ability to influence the way the world goes certainly is heading towards china and away from us which is problematic when we're pushing the world away as well that is true right and we are right china is making a bunch of decisions that are making them stronger while we make a bunch of decisions that are making us weaker so it's not great is it just short-term versus long-term thinking we have short-term politicians short-term thinking they have longer-term aspirations longer-term thinking it's that it's cohesiveness right i mean the you know the most efficient form of government is benevolent dictatorship or dictatorship actually which actually has the interests of the country at heart you know i'm not in favor of dictatorship because usually you get up with you get a dictatorship that has its own interests at heart but china has had a basically an authoritarian system that has had the citizens interest at heart is one way to look at it obviously there's way too broad a statement but they have a former government that has been quite efficient over the last decade now Will that last? Will it last as Xi Jinping becomes more authoritarian, as people start to distrust the government? Will the Chinese system last when they're not growing at 10% a year? Those are hard questions that I can't possibly predict. What would you um, speculate? What would I speculate? I'd speculate that they continue to be quite successful, but I wouldn't put the odds at it at 100%. Yeah, I think the long-term thinking is is so much more valuable. It, I mean, it creates an interesting question of, has Western democracy evolved beyond itself? So I think I, I, we have the provably worst um, democratic system in the world in the US, according to election research scientists that we've had on the program. And I think it's pretty easy to, to see the results of that. But do we move towards an era where democracy becomes vastly, vastly different? Or we move towards something different entirely, do you think? Yeah, this is one of my great fears. My great, one of my great fears is that technology makes democracy harder. And that, you know, for 15 years from the time of the great beginnings of the tech boom, you know, sort of coincide with the end of the Cold War, it seemed like technology would only make democracy stronger. And that does not seem to be the case. Certainly, the number of democracies in the world is in decline. The number of authoritarian states is on the rise. And that that has coincided with the tech boom, whether that's correlation or causal, who can say, but certainly doesn't seem to be the case that directionally it's working the other way, the way I expect it, which is that technology helps democracy. So then the question yeah. in the long run is, as this technology continues to boom, does the world continue to shift and become more authoritarian? My hope is that we can fix the tech and help make democracy stronger. My fear is that we can't. What if we just changed it? What if we had random democracy? What's random democracy? I mean, screw the politicians. We pick it all out of a hat. We get random people. Then we get actual people with like... like good, random good, representative democracy. Random random representative democracy. I think it would be miles better than what we have today. Really? Yeah. So the, Senate, the, Senate, the senators from New York are two people picked... Like everybody who wants to be a senator volunteers... No, no, everyone. No volunteering. Because otherwise, when you have volunteering, you have the people that are already... But then you're mandated. Like if I were named to the Senate, I don't know. I've got three kids. I don't want to go to Washington all the time. Like how do you determine the person you randomly select actually serves? It's like jury, it's like jury duty. You have to serve six years. I mean, we could play with the time horizons a little bit. But in terms of getting a better mix of people with differing perspectives that weren't already bought 
that hadn't sold their soul. I think it could be very, very interesting. I don't think it will happen because the people that get to choose how we choose don't want to choose like that. But I mean, it's an interesting question. All right. So it couldn't be worse. It, it could be worse, right? It's possible that having random people, they would like vested interests with lots of money might be more effective with random people, right? Who aren't up for re-election and have no moral qualms about you know, taking a million dollars or having a million dollars given to their kid if they make a decision one way or the other. Like, it seems like it could be a more corruptible system. It could be if you allow corruption. But I mean, corruption is pretty easy to keep track of. The, the real corruption we have today is uh, campaign finance. You have corporations buying politicians. If you don't have campaigns, that doesn't exist. Right. But you have, I think you, you eliminate one kind of corruption and vastly enable another kind of corruption. You do have the possibility that some of the people who come into office are monsters, but that is also a possibility now, even with our electoral system. It's probably a higher possibility because you have to be a bit, not sadistic, you have to be a bit, what's the word, at least narcissistic to get into it. It has to be about you. But why would you want random representative democracy as opposed to Because everyone plebiscites? will try the best. But why not just have, like, have it be like California, where everybody votes on every major law? Oh, that's, I mean, that would work as well. How Switzerland works is direct democracy. That's also a better system. But I just feel like a lot of those are going to suffer from similar plights of representative democracy. Because when you have representative democracy, it's like representative capitalism. You have exponential gains going to an increasingly small number of individuals. Is the president selected randomly? The, I mean, you would choose everyone randomly. You couldn't really do it one way or the other. You, I mean, you could have it be... Court is random? You could have it be... I don't really think about the Supreme Court. I was thinking more about direct politicians. But in terms of... And it's not totally flushed out. But in terms of that, I mean, you could even have it be, okay, we have these... 100 people that are going to be the here and they get to choose who they want to be the president among them. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ways you could suss it, but people have never even really considered the fact that we have one option. The past is not the past is set, but the future isn't. People kind of walk into the future walking backwards, only looking at what they've ever seen, thinking it will always be the same. And the one guarantee is it won't. So my my argument would be a I I don't think I don't have a lot of faith in randomness as a political system for the reasons I laid out, but I also one of the reasons why we have a stable democracy is because we have a stable democracy, right? The fact that we've had this for, you know, over 200 years and the fact that it has led us to ups and downs, but at least has led us to make the right decisions at the most crucial moments. Having people trust the system helps the system prevail. And I think actually makes it more likely that we emerge from this moment of Trump and sort of the hateful politics we have today with something better on the other end. Do you think we have a lot of trust in the system? We have, if, if you were to make a, like, so you look at other countries where they install democracy, it's very, it's very tenuous. Like when you have a major change in the system, the new system you create, whatever it is, is in a very tenuous position until it's been shown to work for a period of time, right? And you, you are more likely to get military coup, right? I feel like if you were to say, you know, let's shift to random democracy in America, you'd be more likely to have a military coup. Right now, military coup is like not likely because people trust the system. Anyway, how did we get on random democracy? I'm glad we did. But how did we do that? I'm not entirely sure how we did do that. I want to jump to the lightning round now. It's a patron only bonus. Ready? Yes, please. What's the best advice you ever got? Best advice I ever got. You know, it's not advice, but the line that sticks in my head in complicated moments is something from George Kennan. So I wrote this book on Paul Nitz and George Kennan, Chasing America During the Cold War. And there was something he said that I always think about, which is if you look 
at every bad outcome, and he's talking about American foreign policy, but he applies it to life. If you look at every bad outcome, it's usually the result of a chain of things going wrong. And there's one way when you think about the world with that perspective, then everything that goes wrong, you can get enormously depressed because, oh, wait, maybe that's part of the chain that's leading you to an ever worse outcome. But actually, what he also pointed out is that it does the reverse because it means that you can reverse something that's going in the wrong way, not by doing it all at the same time, but by just getting the chain going in the right direction, right? You make something go right, and then you make something else go right, and then you make something else go right, and eventually you turn it around. And so that's part of how I look at life, which is even if you're upset at where you are now, and even if you're upset at today, you do the next thing right, or you do the next thing well, and it can help set up a chain that leads to things getting ever better. And so I find that actually enormously reassuring because it gives you a way a framework for kind of resetting yourself at any dark moment. Yeah, you're not it's not happening to you suddenly you're involved in you have a say in the future, which is something you see and you know what, no matter how bad the thing that happened one minute ago is, and no matter how many bad decisions you made that led to that moment, you can start to make good decisions. I like it. I want a bold contrarian ten year prediction, something most people around you wouldn't believe or wouldn't currently believe. I think Facebook will be fixed. Right. You say most people around me, I'm just looking at a bunch of reporters here covering tech. I actually think that through smart pressure applied at the right points, Facebook will actually be a social good in 10 years. I hope so. I think it definitely has the possibility. I'm not sure that's bold, but it's certainly contrarian. I think more people around. I would say that's pretty bold, given given what's been going on lately. Yeah, it's been a rough year for them. It's been a rough year for them. Well, other than the stock prices, right? Right. Yeah, which I think is actually one of the problems in that if the stock price were actually going down, you would get many more better reforms. Mm-hmm. We might need to reform the, the stock market system while we're at it. Yeah. If you were 18 to 20 today, what would you jump into? What would you pursue? If I were 18 or 20 today, oh, I would 100% go into um, engineering. I would go into, I would try to, the, the powerful and important decisions in society are going to be made by engineers, roboticists, coders. You know, I often, when I look back at my own choice, when I was 18 to 20 then, back then, it was right before the internet boom. And I wish I had anticipated it. I was right there. You know, I went to Stanford at the moment and graduated in 1997. Boom hits 99, 2000. I didn't see it. But if I'd seen it in 97, you can imagine learning things that would have been very useful to learn, working on things that would have been very useful to have worked on, helping to shape the most powerful forces in society. So if I were 18 to 20, I would do that now. You could argue you did that. You just did it from a different Different angle, right? I mean, it's very helpful that I learned about engineering and like developed a real respect for the knowledge of how to code and how to build these things and built a network. And, you know, I worked for a little while at a Linux hardware company back then. Um, But that would have, I think that would have been a good choice. What technology or trend are you most excited about and why? I'm most excited. Okay, so if I can go for, I don't know, it depends on whether it's net excitement, right? Because if it's, it's, the two things that I'm most excited about are, you know, genetic engineering and AI, but the problem is net net. I'm also quite worried. So if you take the excitement and distract and subtract the fear you end up with a net positive, but it's both high excitement and high fear. So the calculation is a little harder. Uh, let's go with augmented reality. I think that's going to be great. When does it count as augmented reality? Pretty soon. Did I it- mean, it does like Pokemon Go counts as augmented reality. But I think that I subscribe to a hypothesis that this author Kevin Kelly laid out um, in an article for us called Mirror World, which is combining augmented reality mapping and the Internet of Things, we will soon have a world where most areas will be mapped in some way or the other. So the room that I'm in right now, the different electronic devices will communicate with each other and people will be able to travel to interior areas or to much greater 
depth of areas than we can right now in Google Maps. And you'll be able to move around rooms and places and search rooms and places. And that will create alternative worlds, he calls it the mirror world, that are immensely fascinating and create whole new economies. Like a virtual real reality. Something like that. I like it. Yeah. Back to the regular interview. Sure. Question. Big tech. What do you think? Regulation. Do we break up? We've got Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple. Those are the big players. Yep. What are your thoughts on what the government, what people should do, what we should want? What we should want is we should want regulation. We should want strict restrictions on acquisitions. We should want strict scrutiny of past acquisitions, possible unwinding of past acquisitions. We should want good regulations on privacy. We should not want insane regulations like you know, Senator Hawley has just proposed a bill that you know, would ban, I don't know, infinite scroll and spending more than 30 minutes a day on social media, like ridiculous Big Brother stuff. But you want smart, crafted regulations, and then you want legitimate threat of antitrust, but you don't actually want this government breaking up these tech companies. So you want the threat of antitrust to incentivize better behavior, but you don't actually want William Barr's Department of Justice determining what Google can or cannot do. Speaking of William Barr, any big predictions? On? Just the state of things. What will happen? Mueller's testimony, where we're going. I think on that, we're going into a cul-de-sac. I don't think that, I think we're moving past that. I think where the idea that there will be some impeachment tied to the Mueller investigation, or there will be some other shoe that drops, or that there will be some reinterpretation of the Mueller report. I think that William Barr did a masterful political job of making that, of framing it, you know, in a very different light from the reality. And then the number of people who actually read the report was quite low. And he did a textbook job of framing damning evidence and changing the conversation um, before the rest of the world got to read the evidence. So I think that goes away. I think that it's an extremely important historical document, extremely important investigation. I think there's a lot of very dark stuff, and I don't think that we're going to spend a ton more time on it, which is unfortunate, but there we are. Be the next Ken- Kennedy-type documentary. We'll have the the conspiracy stuff popping out. Yeah, well, I hope there's not conspiracy. I hope there's actual facts and, you know, learn information and unanswered questions. But, you know, there we are. It is, it is also true that the left-wing conspiracy theories about what Trump did in the election turn out to not be correct. It also absolutely turns out that he encouraged Russian hackers and WikiLeaks and that that had a big effect on the election. But it's certainly not true that he is a Russian agent, right? The, you know, kind of left-wing hypothesis of six months ago is also clearly false. Yeah, it'd be more like Johnny English than James Bond. Mm -hmm. I got two last questions for you. One, I give you a magic wand and near unlimited funding. What problem do you go solve? You got to go quit wired. Don't tell your boss. Well, but I would solve the, you know what I would solve? I would try to, you know, this actually a specific thing I would work on would be geoengineering. How do you develop technology that reduces carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in a way that isn't dangerous? Oh, yeah, that's a scary one because it's something where you got the billionaire who can go start spraying into the atmosphere and then, sorry, guys, I just decided to take action. Yep, and destroy the world. And that we're heading in that direction because you know, we're not, we're, we are not anywhere close to reducing our energy consumption the way we would need to prevent catastrophic climate change. So, you know, the metaphor I like is that we're, you know, we're somebody who's been told they're overweight for 20 years and hasn't done anything. And now it's going to be time for, you know, radical surgery. And that's dangerous, but that's where we're going. And you're going to have to find a slightly higher apartment in New York City. <laughs> no, I live in Park Slope. Slope. I'm, I'm several hundred feet elevated anyway. 
Okay, well, you can you can swim to you can swim you can swim to work. I got I got one last question for you, Nick, and that's if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, it could be anything before you tell them more about you and where to find you. What would it be and why? Well, you know, I think one thing that's really important is let's return to where we started. And this is self-interested, but I think that people need to think deeply about the role that rigorous, thoughtful media can play in their lives, that it plays in a functioning democracy and that they should, you know, give their local journalists a hug and subscribe to publications they care about and support important journalism. As to where they can reach me, you know, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. I'm either Nicholas Thompson or NX Thompson. You can go to nickthompson.com and you can email me at nicholas underscore thompson at wired.com. You're big on LinkedIn as well. What's your tech of the day today? <laughs> I'm not sure what my tech of the day today might be the amazing fights about Equifax. Yeah, I'm, that turns out for whatever reason, that is the platform where the things I talk about resonate the best. We really need to have some major overhauls of the privacy. People need to have, people need to get butchered over what's been happening, and it's just not happening. Oh my God, and the Equifax thing is so funny and weird. Anyway, get yeah, your money. It's funny and weird in that Black Mirror type. Can you get your money now? I heard they took it all down. They took it all down. No. So our latest thinking, and this may be wrong, is that if you so Equifax gives you two options: one hundred twenty-five dollars for credit monitoring. Credit monitoring is useful because we all useless because we all have credit monitoring from the seven hundred other hacks that happened. So get your money. But there's a limited pool of money, at least in the short term. But I think if you ask for your money, even though you won't get it immediately or you'll only get a small fraction, you will get it in five years. So that is when the small pool is merged with a larger pool. I can't remember exactly how the mechanism works, but get your $125. You deserve it. Interesting. I heard they took the option down, but maybe they it down. So what they said is... Right, so they put it out initially and they say, hey, you can either have $125 or free credit monitoring. But they only did they dedicate $30 million. So if 30 million people ask for the $125, they just divide $30 million by the number of people. So we all get $1. But I believe in four and a half years, that $30 million dedicated to that pool becomes a couple of hundred million dollars. So then... If there are 30 million people in a pool with a couple hundred million dollars, you get real money. There we go. You heard it here first. Go screw the screwers. That is what you need to go go screw. That's the best advice I've heard ever. That better than George Kennan. Yeah. uh, The the other one I like is if you're going to run Facebook ads, run them on politicians and show them what you can do. Thanks for coming on, Nick. All right. Thanks so much. It was lovely to be here. Great to talk with you. And I love um, I love all the strange roads we walked down together in the last little while. That's how life works. Talk to you guys and talk to you later. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.